When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Another World Audiobooks in the year 2020. Can you believe it, guys? We are in the year 2020, a brand new decade, a brand new year. Hope you guys had a wonderful holiday season and are jumping into the new year with with vim and vigor to uh, make it the best year yet. I'm very confident this is going to be the best year yet for Another World Audiobooks. Super excited about the audiobooks that are upcoming. And uh, remember, if you missed any of the, the books in the past that we've done, you can get those just by going backwards in the episodes. Like, we've got over two years of episodes now, so go and check out the backlist. And remember, if you don't want to listen to them episode by episode, you can get the full audiobook versions by just clicking the show notes and checking that out. You can also go to the blog, um, and there's a Get My Free Audiobook um, link there. And you can do that, and I will send you a full free audiobook. So that's, that's all you got to do. Just uh, click on that link. So make that happen. And uh, now, without further ado, I give you the next couple chapters of A Princess of Mars. Chapter 16 We Plan Escape. The remainder of our journey to Thark was uneventful. We were 20 days upon the road, crossing two sea bottoms and passing through or around a number of ruined cities mostly smaller than Korad. Twice we crossed the famous Martian waterways, or canals, so called by our earthly astronomers. When we approached these points, a warrior would be sent far ahead with a powerful field glass, and if no great body of red Martian troops was in sight, we would advance as close as possible without chance of being seen, and then camp until dark, when we would slowly approach the cultivated track, and locating one of the numerous broad highways which crossed these areas at regular intervals, creep silently and stealthily across to the arid lands upon the other side. It required five hours to make one of these crossings without a single halt, and the other consumed the entire night, so that we were just leaving the confines of the high-walled fields when the sun broke out upon us. Crossing in the darkness, as we did, I was unable to see but little, except as the nearer moon, in her wild and ceaseless hurtling through the Barsoomian heavens, lit up little patches of the landscape from time to time, disclosing walled fields and low, rambling buildings, presenting much the appearance of earthly farms. There were many trees, methodically arranged, and some of them were of enormous height. There were animals in some of the enclosures, and they announced their presence by terrified squealings and snortings as they scented our queer wild beasts and wilder human beings. Only once did I perceive a human being, and that was at the intersection of our crossroad with a wide, white turnpike, which cuts each cultivated district longitudinally at its exact center. The fellow must have been sleeping beside the road, for, as I came abreast of him, he raised upon one elbow, and after a single glance at the approaching caravan, leaped shrieking to his feet and fled madly down the road, scaling a nearby wall with the agility of a scared cat. The Tharks paid him not the slightest attention. They were not out upon the warpath, and the only sign that I had that they had seen him was a quickening of the pace of the caravan as we hastened toward the bordering desert which marked our entrance into the realm of Tal Hajus. Not once did I have speech with Dejah Thoris, as she sent no word to me that I was welcome at her chariot, and my foolish pride kept me from making any advances. 
I verily believe that a man's way with women is an inverse ratio to his prowess among men. The weakling and the saphead have often great ability to charm the fair sex, while the fighting man, who can face a thousand real dangers unafraid, sits hiding in the shadows like some frightened child. Just thirty days after my advent upon Barsoom, we entered the ancient city of Thark, from whose long-forgotten people this horde of green men have stolen even their name. The hordes of Thark number some thirty thousand souls, and are divided into twenty-five communities. Each community has its own Jed and lesser chieftains, but all are under the rule of Talhajus, Jeddak of Thark. Five communities make their headquarters at the city of Thark, and the balance is scattered among other deserted cities of ancient Mars throughout the district claimed by Talhajus. We made our entry into the great central plaza early in the afternoon. There were no enthusiastic friendly greetings for the returned expedition. Those who chanced to be in sight spoke the names of warriors or women with whom they came in direct contact, in the formal greeting of their kind, but when it was discovered that they brought two captives, a greater interest was aroused, and Dejah Thoris and I were the centers of inquiring groups. We were assigned to new quarters, and the balance of the day was devoted to settling ourselves to the changed conditions. My home was upon an avenue leading into the plaza from the south, the main artery down which we had marched from the gates of the city. I was at the far end of the square and had an entire building to myself. The same grandeur of architecture, which was so noticeable a characteristic of Korad, was in evidence here, only, if it were possible, on a larger and richer scale. My quarters would have been suitable for housing the greatest of earthly emperors, but to these queer creatures nothing about a building appealed to them but its size and the enormity of its chambers. The larger the building, the more desirable. And so, Tal Hajus occupied what must have been an enormous public building, the largest in the city, but entirely unfitted for residence purposes. The next largest was reserved for Lorcas Tomel, the next for the Jed of a lesser rank, and so on to the bottom of the list of five Jeds. The warriors occupied the buildings with the chieftains to whose retinues they belonged, or, if they preferred, sought shelter among any of the thousands of unattended buildings in their own quarter of town, each community being assigned a certain section of the city. The selection of building had to be made in accordance with these divisions, except insofar as the Jeds were concerned, they all occupied edifices which fronted upon the plaza. When I had finally put my house in order, or rather seen that it had been done, it was nearing sunset, and I hastened out with the intention of locating Sola and her charges, as I had determined upon speaking with Dejah Thoris and trying to impress on her the necessity of our at least patching up a truce until I could find some way of aiding her to escape. I searched in vain until the upper rim of the great red sun was just disappearing behind the horizon, and then I spied the ugly head of Woola peering from a second-story window on the opposite side of the very street where I was quartered, but nearer the plaza. Without waiting for a further invitation, I bolted up the winding runway which led to the second floor, and entering a great chamber at the front of the building was greeted by the frenzied Woola, who threw his great carcass upon me, nearly hurling me to the floor. The poor old fellow was so glad to see me that I thought he would devour me, his head split from ear to ear, showing his three rows of tusks and his hobgoblin smile. Quieting him with a word of command and a caress, I looked hurriedly through the approaching gloom for a sign of Dejah Thoris, and then, not seeing her, I called her name. There was an answering murmur from the far corner of the apartment, and with a couple of quick strides I was standing beside her where she crouched among the furs and silks upon an ancient carved wooden seat. As I waited, she rose to her full height, and looking me straight in the eye, said, What would Dotar Sojat, Thark, of Dejah Thoris his captive? 
Deja Thoris. I do not know how I have angered you. It was furthest from my desire to hurt or offend you, whom I had hoped to protect and comfort. Have none of me if it is your will, but that you must aid me in effecting your escape, if such a thing be possible, is not my request but my command. When you are safe once more at your father's court, you may do with me as you please. But from now on until that day, I am your master, and you must obey and aid me. She looked at me long and earnestly, and I thought that she was softening towards me. I understand your words, Dotar Sojat, she replied. But you I do not understand. You are a queer mixture of child and man, a brute and noble. I only wish that I might read your heart. Look down at your feet, Dejah Thoris. It lies there now, where it has lain since the other night at Korad, and where it will ever lie beating alone for you until death stills it forever. She took a little step towards me, her beautiful hands outstretched in a strange, groping gesture. What do you mean, John Carter? She whispered. What are you saying to me? I'm saying what I had promised myself that I would not say to you, at least until you were no longer a captive among the green men. What from your attitude towards me from the past twenty days, I had thought never to say to you. I'm saying, Dejah Thoris, that I'm yours, body and soul, to serve you, to fight for you, and to die for you. Only one thing I ask of you in return, and that is you make no sign, either of condemnation or of approbation in my words, until you are safe among your own people, and that whatever sentiments you harbor towards me, they are not influenced or colored by gratitude. Whatever I may do to serve you will be prompted solely by selfish motives, since it gives me more pleasure to serve you than not. I will respect your wishes, John Carter, because I understand the motives which prompt them, and I accept your service no more willingly than I bow to your authority. Your word shall be my law. I have twice wronged you in my thoughts, and again I ask your forgiveness." Further conversation of a personal nature was prevented by the entrance of Sola, who was much agitated and wholly unlike her usual calm and possessed self. "'That horrible Sarkoja has been before Talhajus, she cried. "'And from what I have heard upon the plaza, there is little hope for either of you.' "'What do they say?' inquired Dejah Thoris. "'That you will be thrown to the wild Kalats in the great arena "'as soon as the hordes have assembled for the yearly games.' "'Solar,' I said, "'you are a Thark. "'Would you hate and loathe the customs of your people as much as we do? "'Will you not accompany us in one supreme effort to escape? "'I am sure that Dejah Thoris can offer you a home and protection among her people, "'and your fate can be no worse among them than it must ever be here.' "'Yes,' cried Dejah Thoris. Come with us, Sola. You will be better off among the red men of Helium than you are here, and I can promise you not only a home with us, but the love and affection your nature craves, and which must always be denied you by the customs of your own race. Come with us, Sola. We might go without you, but your fate would be terrible if they thought you were connived to aid us. I know that even that fear would not tempt you to interfere in our escape, but we want you with us. We want you to come to a land of sunshine and happiness, amongst the people who know the meaning of love, of sympathy, and of gratitude. Say that you will, Sola. Tell me that you will. The great waterway which leads to Helium is but fifty miles to the south, murmured Sola, half to herself. A swift thoat might make it in three hours, and then to Helium it is five hundred miles, 
most of the way through thinly settled districts. They would know, and they would follow us. We might hide among the great trees for a time, but the chances are small indeed for escape. They would follow us to the very gates of Helium, and they would take toll of life at every step. You do not know them. Is there no other way we might reach Helium? I asked. Can you not draw me a rough map of the country we must traverse, Dejothorus? Yes, she replied, and taking a great diamond from her hair, she drew upon the marble floor the first map of Barsoomian territory I had ever seen. It was crisscrossed in every direction with long straight lines, sometimes running parallel, and sometimes converging towards some great circle. The lines, she said, were waterways, the circles cities, and one far to the northwest of us she pointed out as helium. There were other cities closer, but she said she feared to enter many of them, as they were not all friendly toward helium. Finally, after studying the map carefully in the moonlight which now flooded the room, I pointed out a waterway far to the north of us, which also seemed to lead to Helium. Does not this pierce her grandfather's territory? I asked. Yes, she answered. But it is two hundred miles north of us. It is one of the waterways we crossed on the trip to Thark. They would never suspect that we would try for that distant waterway, I answered, and that, is why I think it is the best route for our escape. Sola agreed with me, and it was decided that we should leave Thark this same night, just as quickly, in fact, as I could find and saddle my thoats. Sola was to ride one, and Dejan Thoris and I the other, each of us carrying sufficient food and drink to last us for two days, since the animals could not be urged too rapidly for so long a distance. I directed Sola to proceed with Dejan Thoris along one of the less frequented avenues to the southern boundary of the city, where I would overtake them with the thoats as quickly as possible. Then, leaving them to gather what food, silks, and furs we were to need, I slipped quietly to the rear of the first floor and entered the courtyard, where our animals were moving restlessly about, as was their habit, before settling down for the night. In the shadows of the buildings, and out beneath the radiance of the Martian moons, moved the great herd of thoats and zitidars, the latter grunting their low gutturals, and the former occasionally emitting the sharp squeal which denotes the almost habitual state of rage in which these creatures pass their existence. They were quieter now, owing to the absence of man, but as they sent to me, they became more restless, and their hideous noise increased. It was risky business, this entering a paddock of thoats alone and at night, first because their increasing noisiness might warn the nearby warriors that something was amiss, and also because for the slightest cause, and for no cause at all, some great bull thoat might take it upon himself to lead a charge upon me. Having no desire to awaken their nasty tempers on such a night as this, where so much depended upon secrecy and dispatch, I hugged the shadow of the buildings, ready at an instant's warning to leap into the safety of a nearby door or window. Thus, I moved silently to the great gates which opened upon the street at the back of the court, and as I neared the exit, I called softly to my two animals. How I thanked the kind providence which had given me the foresight to win the love and confidence of these wild, dumb brutes, for presently, from the far side of the court, I saw two huge bulks forcing their way towards me through the surging mountains of flesh. They came quite close to me, rubbing their muzzles against my body, and nosing for the bits of food it was always my practice to reward them with. Opening the gates, I ordered the two great beasts to pass out, and then slipping quietly after them, I closed the portals behind me. I did not saddle or mount the animals there, but instead walked quietly in the shadows of the buildings towards an unfrequented avenue which led towards the point I had arranged to meet Deja Thoris and Sola. With the noiselessness of disembodied spirits, we moved stealthily along the deserted streets, 
but not until we were within sight of the plain beyond the city did I commence to breathe freely. I was sure that Sola and Dejah Thoris would find no difficulty in reaching our rendezvous undetected, but with my great thoughts I was not so sure for myself, as it was quite unusual for warriors to leave the city after dark. In fact, there was no place for them to go within any but a long ride. I reached the appointed meeting place safely, but as Dejah Thoris and Sola were not there, I led my animals into the entrance hall of one of the large buildings. Presuming that one of the other women of the same household may have come in to speak to Sola and so delayed their departure, I did not feel any undue apprehension until nearly an hour had passed without a sign of them, and by the time another half-hour had crawled away, I was becoming filled with grave anxiety. Then there broke upon the stillness of the night the sound of an approaching party, which, from the noise, I knew could be no fugitives creeping stealthily towards liberty. Soon the party was near me, and from the black shadows of my entranceway I perceived a score of mounted warriors, who, in passing, dropped a dozen words that fetched my heart clean into the top of my head. He would likely have arranged to meet them just without the city, and so... I heard no more, they had passed on, but it was enough. Our plan had been discovered, and the chances for escape from now on to the fearful end would be small indeed. My one hope now was to return undetected to the quarters of Dejah Thoris and learn what fate had overtaken her. But how to do it with these great monstrous thoughts upon my hands, now that the city was probably aroused by the knowledge of my escape, was a problem of no mean proportions. Suddenly, an idea occurred to me, and acting on my knowledge of the construction of the buildings of these ancient Martian cities, with a hollow court within the center of each square, I groped my way blindly through the dark chambers, calling the great thoughts after me. They had difficulty in negotiating some of the doorways, but as the buildings fronting the city's principal exposures were all designed upon a magnificent scale, they were able to wriggle through without sticking fast. And thus, we finally made the inner court where I found, as I had expected, the usual carpet of moss-like vegetation, which would provide their food and drink until I could return them to their own enclosure. That they would be as quiet and contented here as elsewhere, I was confident, nor was there but the remotest possibility that they would be discovered as the green men had no great desire to enter these outlying buildings, which were frequented by the only thing, I believe, which caused them the sensation of fear, the great white apes of Barsoom. Removing the sandal trappings, I hid them just within the rear doorway of the building through which we had entered the court, and, turning the beast loose, quickly made my way across the court to the rear of the building upon the further side, and thence to the avenue beyond. Waiting in the doorway of the building until I was assured that no one was approaching, I hurried across to the opposite side and through the first doorway to the court beyond. Thus, crossing through court after court with only the slightest chance of detection which the necessary crossing of the avenues entailed, I made my way in safety to the courtyard in the rear of Dejah Thoris's quarters. Here, of course, I found the beasts of the warriors who quartered in the adjacent buildings, and the warriors themselves I might expect to meet within if I entered, but, fortunately for me, I had another and safer method of reaching the upper story where Dejah Thoris should be found, and, after first determining as nearly as possible which of the buildings she occupied, for I had never observed them before from the court side, I took advantage of my relatively great strength and agility, and sprang upward until I grasped the sill of a secondary story window which I thought to be in the rear of her apartment. Drawing myself inside the room, I moved stealthily toward the front of the building, and not until I had quite reached the doorway of a room was I made aware by voices that it was occupied. I did not rush headlong in, but listened without to assure myself that it was Dejah Thoris, and that it was safe to venture within. It was well indeed that I took this precaution, 
for the conversation I heard was in the low gutturals of men, and the words which finally came to me proved a most timely warning. The speaker was a chieftain, and he was giving orders to four of his warriors. And when he returns to his chamber, he was saying, and as he surely will when he finds she does not meet him at the city's edge, you four are to spring upon him and disarm him. It will require the combined strength of all of you to do it if the reports they bring back from Korad are correct. When you have him fast bound, bear him to the vaults beneath the Jeddak's quarters and chain him securely where he may be found when Talhajus wishes him. Allow him to speak with none, nor permit any other to enter this apartment before he comes. There will be no danger of the girl returning, for by this time she is safe in the arms of Talhajus, and may all her ancestors have pity upon her, for Talhajus will have none. The great Sarkoja has done a noble knight's work. I go, and if you fail to capture him when he comes, I commend your coxes to the cold bosom of Is. Chapter 17 A Costly Recapture As the speaker ceased, he turned to leave the apartment by the door where I was standing, but I needed wait no longer. I had heard enough to fill my soul with dread, and stealing quietly away, I returned to the courtyard by the way I had come. My plan of action was formed upon the instant, and crossing the square and the bordering avenue upon the opposite side, I soon stood within the courtyard of Tal Hajus. The brilliantly lighted apartments of the first floor told me where first to seek, and advancing to the windows, I peered within. I soon discovered that my approach was not to be the easy thing I had hoped, for the rear rooms bordering the court were filled with warriors and women. I then glanced up at the stories above, discovering that the third was apparently unlighted, and so decided to make my entrance to the building from that point. It was the work of but a moment for me to reach the windows above, and soon I had drawn myself within the sheltering shadows from the unlighted third floor. Fortunately, the room I had selected was unattended, and creeping noiselessly to the corridor beyond, I discovered a light in the apartments ahead of me. Reaching what appeared to be a doorway, I discovered that it was but an opening upon an immense inner chamber, which towered from the first floor two stories below me to the dome-like roof of the building, high above my head. The floor of this great circular hall was thronged with chieftains, warriors, and women, and at one end was a great raised platform upon which squatted the most hideous beast I had ever put my eyes upon. He had all the cold, hard, cruel, terrible features of the green warriors, but accentuated and debased by the animal passions to which he had given himself over for many years. There was not a mark of dignity or pride upon his bestial countenance, while his enormous bulk spread itself out upon the platform where he squatted like some huge devilfish, his six limbs accentuating the similarity in a horrible and startling manner. But the sight that froze me with apprehension was that of Dejah Thoris and Sola standing there before him, and the fiendish leer of him as he let his great protruding eyes gloat upon the lines of her beautiful figure. She was speaking, but I could not hear what she said, nor could I make out the low grumblings of his reply. She stood there, erect before him, her head held high, and even at the distance I was from them, I could hear the scorn and disgust upon her face as she let her haughty glance rest without sign of fear upon him. She was indeed the proud daughter of a thousand Jeddaks, every inch of her dear, precious little body, so small, so frail, beside the towering warriors around her, but in her majesty, dwarfing them into insignificance. She was the mightiest figure among them, and I verily believe that they felt it. Presently, Talhajus made a sign that the chamber be cleared, and that the prisoners be left alone before him. Slowly, the chieftains, the warriors, and the women 
melted away into the shadows of the surrounding chambers, and Dejah Thoris and Sola stood alone before the Jeddak of the Tharks. One chieftain alone and hesitated before departing. I saw him standing in the shadows of a mighty column, his fingers nervously toying with the hilt of his greatsword, and his cruel eyes bent in implacable hatred upon Talhajus. It was Tars Tarkas, and I could read his thoughts as they were an open book for the undisguised loathing upon his face. He was thinking of that other woman who, forty years ago, had stood before this beast, and could I have spoken a word into his ear at that moment, the reign of Tal Hajis would have been over. But finally, he also strode from the room, not knowing that he left his own daughter at the mercy of the creature he most loathed. Tal Hajis arose, and I, half fearing, half anticipating his intentions, hurried to the winding runway which led to the floors below. No one was near to intercept me, and I reached the main floor of the chamber unobserved, taking my station in the shadow of the same column that Tars Tarkas had just deserted. As I reached the floor, Tal Hajus was speaking. Princess of Helium, I might wring a mighty ransom from your people, would I but return you to them unharmed, but a thousand times rather would I watch that beautiful face writhe in the agony of torture. It shall be long drawn out that, I promise you, ten days of pleasure were all too short to show the love I harbor for your race. The terrors of your death shall haunt the slumbers of the Red Men through all the ages to come. They will shudder in the shadows of the night as our fathers tell them of the awful vengeance of the Green Men, of the power and might and hate and cruelty of Tal Hajus. But before the torture, you shall be mine for one short hour, and word of that too shall go forth to Tardos Moors, Jeddak of Helium, your grandfather, that he may grovel upon the ground in the agony of his sorrow. Tomorrow the torture will commence. Tonight thou art Talhajus. Come. He sprang down from the platform and grasped her roughly by the arm, but scarcely had he touched her than I leaped between them. My short sword, sharp and gleaming, was in my right hand. I could have plunged it into his putrid heart before he realized that I was upon him, but as I raised my arm to strike, I thought of Tars Tarkas, and with all my rage, with all my hatred, I could not rob him of that sweet moment for which he lived and hoped all these long, weary years. And so, instead, I swung my good right fist full upon the point of his jaw. Without a sound, he slipped to the floor as one dead. In the same deathly silence, I grasped Ajar Thoris by the hand, and motioning Sola to follow, we sped noiselessly from the chamber and to the floor above. Unseen, we reached the rear window, and with the straps and leather of my trappings, I lowered first Sola and then Dejah Thoris to the ground below. Dropping lightly after them, I drew them rapidly around the court in the shadows of the buildings, and thus we returned over the same course I had so recently followed from the distant boundary of the city. We finally came upon my thoats in the courtyard where I had left them, and placing the trappings upon them, we hastened through the building to the avenue beyond. Mounting, Sola upon one beast, and Dejah Thoris behind me upon the other, we rode from the city of Thark through the hills to the south. Instead of circling back around the city to the northwest and toward the nearest waterway, which lay so short a distance from us, we turned to the northeast and struck out upon the mossy waste across which, for two hundred dangerous and weary miles, lay another main artery leading to Helium. No word was spoken until we had left the city far behind, but I could hear the quiet sobbing of Dejah Thoris as she clung to me with her dear head resting against my shoulder.
If we make it, my chieftain, the debt of Helium will be a mighty one, greater than she can ever pay you. And should we not make it, she continued, the debt is no less, though Helium will never know, for you have saved the last of our line from worse than death. I did not answer, but instead reached to my side, and pressed the little fingers of her I loved where they clung to me for support, and then, in unbroken silence, we sped over the yellow moonlit moss, each of us occupied with his own thoughts. For my part, I could not be other than joyful had I tried, with Dejah Thoris's warm body pressed close to mine, and with all our unpassed danger, my heart was singing as gaily as though we were already entering the gates of Helium. Our earlier plans had been so sadly upset that we now found ourselves without food or drink, and I alone was armed. We therefore urged our beasts to a speed that must tell on them sorely before we could hope to sight the ending of the first stage of our journey. We rode all night and all the following day with only a few short rests. On the second night, both we and our animals were completely fagged, and so we lay down upon the moss and slept for some five or six hours, taking up the journey once more before daylight. All the following day we rode, and when, late in the afternoon, we had sighted no distant trees, the mark of the great waterway throughout all Barsoom, the terrible truth flashed upon us. We were lost. Evidently we had circled, but which way was difficult to say, nor did it seem possible with the sun to guide us by day and the moon and stars by night. At any rate, no waterway was in sight, and the entire party was almost ready to drop from hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Far ahead of us, and a trifle to the right, we could distinguish the outlines of low mountains. These we decided to attempt to reach, in the hope that from some ridge we might discern the missing waterway. Night fell upon us before we reached our goal, and, almost fainting from weariness and weakness, we lay down and slept. I was awakened early in the morning by some huge body pressing close to mine, and opening my eyes with a start, I beheld my blessed old Wula snuggling close to me. The faithful brute had followed us across that trackless waste to share our fate, whatever it might be. Putting my arm about his neck, I pressed my cheek close to his. Nor am I ashamed that I did it, nor for the tears that came to my eyes, as I thought of his love for me. Shortly after this, Dejah Thoris and Sola awakened, and it was decided that we push on at once in an effort to gain the hills. We had gone scarcely a mile when I noticed that my throat was commencing to stumble and stagger in a most pitiful manner, although we had not attempted to force them out of a walk since about noon of the preceding day. Suddenly, he lurched wildly to one side and pitched violently to the ground. Dejah Thoris and I were thrown clear of him and fell upon the soft moss with scarcely a jar, but the poor beast was in a pitiable condition, not even being able to rise, although relieved of our weight. Sola told me that the coolness of the night when it fell, together with the rest, would doubtless revive him, and so I decided not to kill him, as was my first intention, as I had thought it cruel to leave him alone there to die of hunger and thirst. Relieving him of his trappings, which I flung down beside him, we left the poor fellow to his fate, and pushed on with the one thoat as best we could. Sola and I walked, making Dejah Thoris ride, much against her will. In this way, we had progressed to within about a mile of the hills we were endeavoring to reach, when Dejah Thoris, from her point of vantage upon the thoat, cried out that she saw a great party of mounted men filing down from a pass in the hills several miles away. Sola and I both looked in the direction she indicated, and there, plainly discernible, were several hundred mounted warriors. They seemed to be headed in a southwesterly direction, which would take them away from us. They doubtless were Thark warriors, 
who had been sent out to capture us, and we breathed a great sigh of relief that they were traveling in the opposite direction. Quickly lifting Dejah Thoris from the throat, I commanded the animal to lie down, and we three did the same, presenting as small an object as possible for fear of attracting the attention of the warriors toward us. We could see them as they filed out of the past, just for an instant, before they were lost to view behind a friendly ridge. To us, a most providential ridge, since, had they been in view for any great length of time, they scarcely could have failed to discover us. As what proved to be the last war came into view from the pass, he halted, and, to our consternation, threw his small but powerful field glass to his eye and scanned the sea bottom in all directions. Evidently, he was a chieftain, for in certain marching formations among the green men, a chieftain brings up the extreme rear of the column. As his glass swung towards us, our hearts stopped in our breasts, and I could feel the cold sweat start from every pore in my body. Presently, it swung full upon us, and stopped. The tension on our nerves was near the breaking point, and I doubt if any of us breathed for the few moments he held us covered by his glass. And then he lowered it, and we could see him shout a command to the warriors who passed from our sight beyond the ridge. He did not wait for them to join, however. Instead, he wheeled his throat and came tearing madly in our direction. There was but one slight chance, and that we must take quickly. Raising my strange Martian rifle to my shoulder, I sighted and touched the button which controlled the trigger. There was a sharp explosion as the missile reached its goal, and the charging chieftain pitched backward from his flying mount. Springing to my feet, I urged the thoat to rise, and directed Sola to take Dejah Thoris with her upon him and make a mighty effort to reach the hills before the green warriors were upon us. I knew that in the ravines and gullies they might find a temporary hiding place, and even though they died there of hunger and thirst, it would be better so than that they fell into the hands of the Tharks. Forcing my two revolvers upon them as a slight means of protection, and, as a last resort, as an escape for themselves from the horrid death which recapture would surely mean, I lifted Dejah Thoris in my arms and placed her upon the throat behind Sola, who had already mounted at my command. Goodbye, my princess, I whispered. We may meet in Helium yet. I have escaped from worse plights than this, and I tried to smile as I lied. What? she cried. Are you not coming with us? How may I, Dejah Thoris? Someone must hold these fellows off for a while, and I can better escape them alone than can the three of us together. She sprang quickly from the throat, and throwing her dear arms around my neck, turned to Sola, saying with quiet dignity, Fly, Sola. Dejah Thoris remains to die with the man she loves. Those words are engraved upon my heart. <laughs> Gladly would I give up my life a thousand times, could I only hear them once again. But I could not then give even a second to the rapture of her sweet embrace, and pressing my lips to hers for the first time, I picked her up bodily and tossed her to a seat behind Sola again, commanding the latter in peremptory tones to hold her there by force, and then, slapping the throat upon the flank, I saw them borne away, Dejah Thor struggling to the last to free herself from Sola's grasp. Turning, I beheld the green warriors mounting the ridge and looking for their chieftain. In a moment they saw him, and then me. But scarcely had they discovered me than I commenced firing, lying flat upon my belly in the moss. I had an even hundred rounds in the magazine of my rifle, and another hundred in the belt on my back, and I kept up a continuous stream of fire until I saw all the warriors who had been first to return from behind the ridge either dead or scurrying for cover. My respite was short-lived, however, for soon the entire party, numbering some thousand men, came charging into view, racing mad toward me. 
I fired until my rifle was empty, and they were almost upon me, and then, a glance showing me that Dejah Thoris and Sola had disappeared among the hills, I sprang up, throwing down my useless gun, and started away in the direction opposite to that taken by Sola and her charge. If ever Martians had an exhibition of jumping, it was granted those astonished warriors on that day long years ago, but while it led them away from Dejah Thoris, it did not distract their attention from endeavoring to capture me. They raced wildly after me, until finally my foot struck a projecting piece of quartz, and down I went, sprawling upon the moss. As I looked up, they were upon me, and although I drew my longsword in an attempt to sell my life as dearly as possible, it was soon over. I reeled beneath their blows which fell upon me in perfect torrents. My head swam, all was black, and I went down beneath them to oblivion. I think I've said this before, but I feel like I just uh, don't get a ton of interaction from the audience, which, you know, kind of makes me sad, but I get it. You guys are busy. You just want a free audiobook, and you want to move on with your life, which is, you know, totally fine. But did want to shout out to my uh, British listeners. There are quite a few of you in the United Kingdom who listen to Another World Audiobooks, so I apologize if my uh, British accents have ever offended you. <laughs> I would actually, I've, I've thought about that a lot of times when I do a British accent. Like, I wonder what, uh, I wonder what my English listeners think of that when I'm doing it. So if, if you have any thoughts, I would love to hear from you. I, uh, I do a, a lot of different British accents with the Sherlock books and stuff like that. The Christmas Carol. I mean, even Dejah Thoris here has a British accent. So you, you uh, British listeners, I would love to hear from you. All the contact links are down below. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm up for some criticism. So if you got it, <laughs> bring it on. All right. Thanks guys for listening. We'll talk to you next uh, week with more chapters of uh, Princess of Mars. In the meantime, remember to get in touch with me with either criticisms of my British accent or uh, if you have a suggestion for which book you'd like to hear next, I'm always looking for listener feedback in that regard. So all the ways to contact me are in the show notes. Talk to you next time.